Well, hey, my name's Cameron. It's really a joy to be with you this morning. In case you haven't heard, my wife and I have had a heck of a week. It's been chaotic. Um, you might have heard our baby was due December 1st, but suddenly out of nowhere, Brittany came down with a rare and life-threatening uh, pregnancy disorder. And so Saturday uh, morning early, she woke up with some abdominal pain, and she thought about just riding it out. She had had some of that before, but she said in the quiet of the morning, a little quiet voice told her to go to the ER. And so she went. And upon arriving, they checked her out and determined that she had something called severe preeclampsia and HELP um, syndrome. And it meant the baby had to get out now. That's the way you cure the disorder. Her life was in jeopardy. So she calls me up and says, hey, I know you got to preach a wedding today and a sermon tomorrow, but you might want to make other plans. Your son's coming tonight. I said, okay. So I go to the shower and then another phone call comes and says, hey, get your tail in down here now. He's coming right now. They're doing an emergency C-section. And, and the reason they did that, she was bottoming out. Her platelets were going down and her enzymes were skyrocketing. So in a matter of 45 minutes, I'm in scrubs in an operating room with my wife cut open on one side, knocked out cold, a nurse to my left side saying, meet your son and take plenty of pictures for mama. I mean, it was a surreal experience. And I have to say, City Light, that that Saturday night turned out to be the hardest night of my life to this point. Uh, little Knox was not doing that well. His lungs were laboring to breathe. He's up in the NICU. I'm running back and forth. My wife is downstairs in recovery. And at some point in the middle of the night, her IV came out. And she didn't get her meds for an over an hour. And so alarms are sounding and her blood pressure is skyrocketing. Platelets dropping. Doctors are whispering, being called in. And I mean, I'm a wreck. And so I go to the hallways, desperate, and just start pacing and praying. And City Light, I can say that through the wrestling, through the pacing, through the praying, that I truly found Psalm 23 to be true. It, it felt like I was walking in the valley of the shadow of death. It felt like the shadow of death was falling on my family. But I immediately began to get this sense of peace and begin to not be as fearful. I felt the comfort and care of my Heavenly Father. He calmed my anxiety. And I had a real sense that God was with me in that hard place. He was walking those hallways with me, and He was settling my soul, and He was leading me to still waters. And not only did He care for my heart in that moment, praise God, He has cared for and keeps caring for my family. Brittany bottomed out but came back. Her playlist got as low as, I think, 25,000, and she's back. And she got stronger and stronger. So praise God, she was in the first gathering and came home late Wednesday night. And then little Knox keeps doing better, getting stronger and stronger. He's still in the NICU. And um, that's my boy right there. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's off his breathing machine. And he just graduated to his big boy bed last night from the incubator to the crib. And he's doing so well. So, so the journey's far from over. And we would ask you just to keep praying for us. But as I stand before you this morning, there are more words from Psalm 23 ringing my heart. You know, that psalm continues, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And so my heart really is filled full of joy and, and gratitude this morning along three lines. One, 
I'm just really thankful to God. I can't tell you what a, what a privilege it is and what it feels like to be a son of God, to have his salvation, the fact that Jesus has sustained my family. I feel so privileged that I get to be called Knox's daddy and I get to be called a husband, the best title I've ever had. And I think what this moment has done in my heart, it has served to deepen my affection and my appreciation for my wife, that she is a great gift of God. And it's also given me a newfound respect for women who go through the labor process. It is strenuous. So we're so thankful for you ladies and what your bodies are capable of. And then finally, I am so thankful to be called one of your pastors, and I mean that. And not only was God with me in the hard place, but man, you've been there with me as well. Uh, you've contended for my family through your prayers. Uh, uh, a small army of you helped us to move into our house. We were literally in the middle of a move when this happened. An elite special forces unit that I call the Omaha Mamas, kind of our adopted mama circle, they swooped in and set our house up, put little flowers on the table. And your timely visits and phone calls have meant so much. So I feel so inadequate when I say this. Words just feel so not good enough. But I, I love you, and I'm just so thankful for you. No, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Let me add that I'm exhausted, and this will probably not be the very best sermon you've ever heard. And so there's my caveat. But, you know, as I prayed about whether I wanted to preach or not, I had no pressure I thought, you know the way this church has loved me and served me, the least I could do is to do my best to show up and serve you the word this morning. So give me some grace, all right? Now, let's talk about adultery. How do we make that turn? I have, I have no idea. So <laughs> this morning, how do I get these texts, Steve? Every time, fornication, adultery, <laughs> circumcision, okay. I want to preach a message from 2 Samuel 11 that I'm calling, Come Clean. Come clean. And that's also the phrase I found myself repeating when I changed Knox's first diaper. Come clean. That first one's a doozy. <laughs> Near my hometown, in the early 2000s, a, a vibrant young pastor sparked a gospel-centered movement. He was faithful to God, preached the gospel, and an unprecedented move of God broke out. He was a, a pastor named Russ. He pastored a church of about 30 in the sticks of East Tennessee, and that church grew to 2,000 people in a county of only 40,000 people. So it was insane, and people were being liberated by the gospel. God's kingdom was expanding, and he began to mentor several other young men, including myself, and sent us out to be ministers. He became a renowned man of God, a legend in that area, and then it happened. In 2010, a lady came forward and confessed that she was having an affair with Pastor Russ. And initially, nobody believed her um, in shock and awe that Russ would be capable of such a thing. And then the following Sunday morning, five other women came forward and confessed the same sin. He was guilty. And there was just massive fallout. It sent shockwaves throughout the community. The church was devastated, marriages were destroyed. And most sadly of all, the gospel was diminished in my home county. So when I go home for the holidays, man, it just grieves me. I see a stately church building that once housed 2,000 worshipers, and now it's only home to a couple of hundred. Now, as unnerving as that story is, in this story, 2 Samuel 11, we discover another moral failure that's even more devastating. And I'm speaking of David's infamous 
sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And as you'll see in the coming weeks, it's an affair that will have massive detrimental consequences. The fallout will be severe. It will include bloodshed, the eventual death of his son, and it will ultimately result in God's kingdom being diminished. And so the reason that we're so taken aback by moral failures, like in the life of Pastor Russ, maybe pastors in this city that we could name, and even in David's life here, we're so taken aback because we do not see this coming, do we? Think about the trajectory of David's life to this point. David was a humble man, and Saul was a prideful man. Saul only wanted God for what he could do for him, but David pursued the very heart of God. David refused to take the kingdom by force and waited patiently on the Lord, though Saul tried to kill him multiple times. He was a man of character, a courageous warrior, a great leader. He was in a season of divine blessing. But suddenly, everything comes crashing down because of his sin. And so, City Light, the the tone of this text is a warning passage. And we need to heed this warning because... If significant moral failure happened to a man like Russ, if it happened to King David, it can happen to any of us. None of us, not a person in this room, is immune from sinning in serious ways. And understand that sin always carries serious consequences. If you've not trusted in Jesus, if you haven't turned from your sins and trusted in him, the consequence is horrible. It's eternal damnation. It's not popular, but the Bible does teach that your destiny is hell if you do not turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, and get forgiveness. Now, for the believers in the room, listen, you will never be separated from a right relationship with Jesus if you've trusted in him. You can't lose your salvation. But if sin is left unchecked, you can lose some things, can't you? You can lose your family. You can lose people you care about. You can lose significant relationships. You can lose your gospel influence. And most severely, you can lose your intimacy with God. Sin is absolutely nothing to play with. Yet here are the realities of the Christian life. We will be tempted daily, won't we? We will sin daily. And at times, we will fail and give in to sin. And at times, we will become entrapped by sin. So I want to help us this morning. Since this is the walk that we're all on, I want to give some practical coaching as to how you should respond when you're tempted. And then when you fall into temptation, I want to show you what you should not do and then what you should do. I think we see the following in this story. And man, see if you can relate to this. I know I can. Here's the big idea. When we sin, our tendency is always to cover our tracks. But confessing our sins and becoming and coming clean before the Lord is always what's best for us. So hear me, when you sin, the gut instinct will be to hide it, to cover it. But the thing that's best for us is to bring it to light, to get the healing and forgiveness and restoration that God offers us. So first of all, I want to talk to you about preventative measures so we don't get entrapped in sin. So number one, when we're tempted... Understanding how sin works can keep you from sinning in significant ways. Or I could say it this way, being familiar with the anatomy of sin can keep you from going off the deep end. Now let's get into the story. The scene is set in the spring of the year. 
which marked the end of the rainy season. That was wartime. When the fields dried out, kings would go to war. Verse 1 makes it clear that that's what time it was. And so David sent Joab and the armies of the Israelites to continue fighting with the Ammonites. But something is out of place here. The end of verse 1 says, David remained at Jerusalem. Understand that staying home in such a moment, a crucial moment, was not his usual practice. The kings always accompanied their men into battle. But on this particular day, he decides to laze around at home in city light. David stays home to his detriment. Because verse 2 says, it happened. That's ominous. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And so David enjoys a lazy nap that stretches well into the afternoon. And when he finally awakes, he decides to take a walk on the roof of his house. Now, the Hebrew word for walking here is always used in a negative way. It signals that something really shady is about to happen. So David here, his heart is restless. He's like a tomcat on the prowl, much like the way that a a man might wait for his family to go to bed so he can serve questionable websites or the way that maybe a dissatisfied married woman tries to attract the attention of men in her office by being flirtatious. David is looking for trouble. Then when he's on the roof, he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And the text says she was very beautiful. That's another Hebrew phrase that's reserved for only the most attractive of people. I mean, this basically means that Bathsheba was a stunner. Okay, when the camel and chariot catalog came and looked for a model to showcase their products, she was always their first choice. That's the kind of woman she was, cosmopolitan. Instead of turning away... David lingers in lust, and and then he takes another step. And that's how sin often works. We inch toward it. He inquires about the woman. And verse 3 records the reply. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So the text makes it clear. It's made clear to David that this woman has boundaries set up around her. She's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's wife, and not just anybody's wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is a mercenary warrior who's been nothing but faithful to David. He's a man in his inner circle fighting for his causes. So the boundaries couldn't be any more clear, but David makes the decision to objectify her anyway. Her Facebook profile says married, but David decides to private message her anyway. And he's old school, though, so he literally sends messengers. We don't do that these days. But verse 4 says, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house. And so this devious deed has been done. But listen, y'all, the ordeal is only beginning. Because we get this spicy little tidbit of information in verse 5. And the woman conceived and told David, I am pregnant. And so now we've got baby mama drama on top of everything else. And so church, this example, this story from David's life serves as a picture of the cycle of sin that we can all get caught up in. And some of us have been there. I've been there. James describes this cycle in his book in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. It should come up on the screen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now notice James says we are enticed by our own desires. Though sexual temptation, lust is primarily in view here and affects so many people in America, in the city, in this church. We all have our own desires, don't we? Those unique ways that we're tempted. So I ask you, what temptation comes your way that threatens to enslave you? For some people, it's a temptation for materialism, coveting what you can't have or shouldn't have, that new designer purse that you can't afford but you buy anyway, that $60,000 Chevy uh, Silverado, I'm trying to think the name of it, I'm kind of a Ford man, that uh, leaves you in crippling debt after you get the payment book. For others, it could be a lust for food that eventually leads to gluttony. One of my dear friends struggled with alcoholism in the past, and if he so much catches a sniff of liquor, his lip will curl. He feels a draw to that. So we're all tempted in unique ways. So whatever our temptation is, there are some insights from this passage that we can utilize to keep us from giving into temptation. So here's the first one. Live in community as opposed to isolation. David's first mistake was being alone. He wasn't where he should have been. He should have been in battle. And I have learned in my own life and as a pastor that the, 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 root, the seeds of sin especially tend to take root in the hearts of isolated and lonely people, people that are not deeply engaged in God's community with God's people. You know, that's why we're so passionate about you joining a city group. It's not just that we want more city groups, that they're essential for your soul. You know, God wired us to live in Christian community. We all need the encouragement and the accountability that our brothers and sisters in Christ can give us. You know, this morning, I want to ask all of us to take more steps to be more vulnerable with each other. You need to have people in your life that are acquainted with all of your messy details. You know, Cameron, your pastor, needs other men speaking into my life, aware of my mess. When I'm not being the husband or dad I should be, I need called out on that. When they see destructive patterns in my life, they should be speaking into that. I know how wayward my heart can be, and yours can be the same. And so we need Christian community to keep us in the light. Here's a second help for you. Number two, flee from sin as opposed to flirting with sin. Seems so simple, but yet we keep flirting. You've heard the phrase, if you mess with the bull long enough, you're going to get the horns. James uses fishing language in that passage I read. I love it as a fisherman. He's basically saying that, hey, if a fish flirts with a lure long enough, he's eventually going to get the hook in Cameron's frying pan. And so listen, City Lot, I have discovered that it's far easier to avoid temptation than to stare it in the face and try to resist it. What's the very best thing that David could have done in that moment? Find a ladder, a set of stairs, and get off that rooftop. Instead, he lingered, looks became lust, and his lust took control of his life. Remember the Apostle Paul, he told the Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality, run away from it, it will capture you. Take every thought captive. Remember back in Genesis when Potiphar's cougar wife tried to seduce teenage Joseph? What did Joseph do? 
he ran out of the house with his coat in her hand. Since our sanctification isn't yet complete, I'm convinced that Christians, people like you and I, we're capable of anything if we don't practice good situational awareness. And we need to be especially mindful of putting ourselves in predicaments that prey on our weaknesses. I love the way that the old reformer Martin Luther put it. It should come up for us. He said, if your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. Okay, if you're like me, if you're addicted to Krispy Kreme donuts, I can't have a dozen in my house. I'd be 700 pounds with my addiction to those things. On a more serious note, if you struggle with internet pornography, especially on your smartphone, it might be worth it to get rid of your smartphone. Go back to the Motorola Razor or that thing that Zach Morris had on Saved by the Bell. Do anything to stay away from what tempts you. If you continually flirt with and entertain sinful thoughts, it will lead to sinful actions. But we can't leave it there. Here's the third thing. To keep from getting caught in sin, you've got to pursue a greater pleasure. Engage with the Lord as opposed to being idle. I think this is the primary reason that David failed. He was idle. He was enjoying a season of blessing that didn't require as much from him. And I found it to be the case that in our seasons of plenty, we tend to forget that Jesus is our greatest treasure and pleasure. When our bills are paid, when the wife is okay, the kids are doing good, the Huskers are winning, we tend to coast. And we don't press into Christ as much as we should. And I think temptation suddenly seized David because he was disengaged. He was not on the front lines with his men. He was not fighting for the glory of God. He wasn't pursuing the purposes of God. And in that moment, he was seduced by Bathsheba's beauty because he failed to be captivated by God's beauty. He got his eyes off his creator. And sin seizes us when we become disengaged. You know, it's cliche, but I have found it to be the case that an idle mind really is the devil's workshop. I understand that the enemy is always vying for your affections. And when we get lax in our devotion to God, when our eyes go away from the beauty of Jesus Christ, the devil is more apt to get our attention. And so in addition to fleeing from sin, when it comes to defeating sin, the other side of the coin is we've got to stir up our affections for God. We hope we can get to the place where we actually love the Lord Jesus more than we do our sin. And we won't want to give into our sin because we know that hinders the love that we enjoy with our Savior. So yes, flee from sin, but it will only be behavior modification if you don't allow Jesus to transform your character. You know, Paul instructed Timothy in this way in 2 Timothy 2.22. He said, flee youthful passions, that's what I've been talking about, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So city lot, let's flee idleness in all forms of sexual sin, and pursue the greater pleasure that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's get on a mission with him. Let's pursue his purposes. But listen, we'll never be able to charge the gates of hell as long as our pants are always down around our ankles. Let's flee what's bad for us and pursue what's the best for us, our relationship with God. And so we need to be wise to the way that sin works. It can help us from sinning. But it's inevitable that we will fall into temptation. So what do we do when we get there? Is there any help for us? Well, first of all, number two, don't cover up your sins 
because that will only make things worse. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Don't cover them up. It always makes things worse. Initially, David demonstrates what not to do when we sin. He hatches a plan to cover his sin, and this plan gets more sinister as the narrative progresses. And we see this in verses 6 through 25. First, here's the easy button. He calls Uriah home from war and tries to get him to sleep with his wife Bathsheba. If he can make the magic happen quick, the timing will be perfect, and everybody would assume that it's just Uriah's baby and not David's. So after getting a war report from Uriah, David tells him in verse 8, Hey, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So again, David thought, man, if I can get this man fresh and clean, get him in the mood, give him a gift, and surely the magic will happen. Maybe that gift was a boys to men CD in a boombox. I don't know, but David was trying to set it up for him. But the plan backfires because Uriah refuses to sleep with Bathsheba. And his abstinence reveals that he's a righteous man, a man of integrity, far different than the way David's acting in this moment. Well, the next day, David questions him about why he did not go into his house. And notice Uriah's reply in verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What a man of integrity, a man of convictions. He was more concerned about the, the presence of God, the people of God, and advancing the purposes of God than he was his creature comforts. Additionally, Uriah is proving here to be obedient to God's law. Now, sex did not make you morally unclean, but it did make you ceremonially unclean under the the, the Levitical code. And so men that were battling, they would say, hey, we're not going to engage in anything that may prevent God's help. We need his help in battle. So he's a righteous man. He's being obedient to God. Now, imagine how convicting this must have been to David. Uriah was slow to lie with his own spouse for righteous reasons. David was quick to lie with another man's wife for unrighteous reasons. Well, then David gets desperate. He ups the ante. Maybe he prays on Uriah's weakness. Verse 13 says, When David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so he made him drunk. I mean, what a vile act. Even though Uriah loved the Lord, apparently he loved Jack Daniels too, okay? He gets him drunk. He imagines that, well... If I can impair his judgment, then surely he'll want to know his wife in the biblical way. But when the evening came, it didn't work. He staggered to the couch, hung over, and did not go down to his house. Now David's panicking, and he goes farther than he probably ever thought he would go. And many of us have been there ourselves. Verses 14 and 15 disclose his devilish plan to cover up his indiscretion. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. I mean, think about what a cruel and cold-hearted act this was. Uriah, a man in his inner circle, delivered his own death warrant. And Joab is picking up what he's putting down and he's complicit in this act. 
And in an effort to make David's plan not as obvious, he allows other mercenaries to be slaughtered for the king's sin. And then the messenger comes back to David with this news in verses 24 and 25. The archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite, he's dead also. But David said to the messenger, "Uh, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours one now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. I mean, how heartless is that? The way this king's acting right now. So David keeps, David takes extreme measures to cover his tracks. But things only got worse instead of getting better. And that's how it always goes. You've probably heard this before, but apologist uh, Ravi Zacharias, he once said this, Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. See, do I understand that unconfessed sin has a way of escalating? You might be here this morning, you may be saying, well, Pastor Cameron, I would never let it get that far to the point of death. Well, I thought I would never let it get that far either. Until my freshman year of college, I was living in rebellion against the Lord. I was a Christian, but in rebellion. And my girlfriend called and told me that she might be pregnant. In that moment, I could not bear the thought of the shame I would face. How I would disappoint my family, my church that I used to attend. I couldn't fathom the life change that would mean for a guy who was only 19 years old. So I found myself up late one night researching, it's hard for me to say this, the cost of abortions. I'll never forget as I poured over my laptop the nausea that rose up in my gut and the sense of the Spirit's conviction that swelled up in my heart. And I can literally remember standing up, springing up and saying, Cameron, what are you doing? What have you become? I never thought I would find myself in a place like that. You know, it turned out she was not pregnant. But the Lord used that moment to teach me a lesson regarding the severity of the damage that can be done when sin goes unchecked. And that was one of the key events he used to draw me back to himself so I could resume my walk with him and then go on to be a minister. So, Cedalot, I ask you, why is it that our gut instinct is always to cover up our sins? to be careful to clear the internet browser, to have secret hiding places around our houses, to carefully guard our cell phones from the eyes of other people. Well, I think we fabricate in our minds that it's far too costly to come clean. We couldn't face the disgrace. We protect against loss. We guard our reputations. Ultimately, we don't come clean. We don't confess, agree with the Lord about our sins and get his forgiveness because we're afraid of consequences. Well, here's what you need to know. Uncovering your sin, confessing your sin, it will be painful. Repentance is costly. But you need to know there are far worse consequences if you keep your sin covered. It's a matter of which consequences are more severe. It's kind of like having cancer and refusing cancer surgery because you're afraid of the pain of the IV or the incision. Yes, it's going to hurt, but... It'll be far worse for you if you don't have the necessary surgery. So think of confession, repentance, coming clean as surgery for your soul. And so what's at stake if you don't come clean? Well, 
I promise you this, your conscience will scream at you. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God will not let you rest. He will hound you. You're going to be weighed down by guilt and shame. Your relationship with God, your intimacy with him, it will be hindered. Your horizontal relationships with family and friends, they will suffer. And again, if you never turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, you'll miss out on the pleasures of eternal life. You know, we refuse to repent because we're so worried about keeping our little kingdoms intact, keeping the facade up. But listen, is it worth that? Is it worth keeping your little kingdom up and missing out on the kingdom of God and the abundant life he offers us in Christ? I submit that it's not. And so City Light, keeping our sins covered will only serve to wreck your life, and it also can wreck the lives of people around you. So that's the warning. That's what not to do. Don't try to cover your sins. So finally, here's what you do do. And this is a glimmer in this story. Understand that. The reason my tone's a little severe, that's the tone of this text. It's mainly warning. It's meant to be a wake-up call for you today. But there is a glimmer of hope this morning. So the final thing is, here's what you should do when you sin. Number three, confess your sin and allow Jesus to cleanse you from your sin. Notice again verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. Oh, listen to this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David thought he'd gotten away with it. And he thought he'd swept his sins under the rug. But this theologian, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, he lost sight of one of the key attributes of God. That's God's omniscience. He sees everything. God knows everything. He takes into account David's dirty deeds, and he is displeased with what he sees. And see, like the same is true with us. Understand, it is absolute folly for us to try to keep covering up our sins. Why? Because God knows everything. He sees everything. His sovereign eyes are constantly scanning our hearts. And Jesus is grieved by our sins. And it's not that he's a cosmic killjoy that doesn't want you to have fun. He's grieved because sin is not good for us. It holds us back from God's best for us. He desires for us to live in relationship with him. He offers us an abundant life, but our sins keep us from that. So the question to be answered is, do we have any hope? Is there any hope that our sins can be forgiven? If we blow it like David, can we have a relationship with God? Can we have a restored relationship? As we're looking at the book of 2 Samuel, is there any hope that we have a better leader to lean on, better than David? Well, again, there's a glimmer of hope here. We might not be quick to see it because we're accustomed to David serving as the Christ character. Typically, David points us back to Jesus. But another man does here, and that man is Uriah. So think about Uriah's life. Uriah is not a perfect man. He likes Budweiser, okay? A little bit too much of it. But he is described as a heroic man. He's a righteous man. He's a man of integrity. Think about this. Uriah, he forsook the pleasures and comforts of home. And he entered the battle. 
And he ends up dying for an unrighteous man named David. Now, church, who's that remind you of? It reminds me of the one true king who would stroll onto the scene a little over a thousand years later. If you'll remember, John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ, God's very son, he forsook the comforts of heaven and he entered the fray on the earth and he lived a perfect life on our behalf. Think about this. Jesus' eyes were pornless. He was perfectly pure. He pleased the heavenly father perfectly. And then he carried his own death warrant to the cross, dying for us, for the sins of humanity, for unrighteous people. And he defeated death in the process. So this insight dawned on me as I wrote this message. And see if you can track with this. Here's what I see in this story. David, his sins result in the death of a multitude of mercenaries. Oh, but in the gospel, the one true king's death, Jesus, results in mercy for a multitude of sinners like us. So see, if we fail to come clean, if we keep covering our sin, we will experience the punishment due to us. Oh, but church, if we open up, if we get transparent before the Lord, if we lay ourselves bare, if we confess, Jesus promises to take our punishment for our sins on his shoulders. And then he covers us with his righteousness. So I make sure I leave you with really good news this morning. Here's a beautiful promise from 1 John 1, 9 that is one of my life verses. And I have claimed this and clung to this again and again and again. Here's what it says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. And church, I want you to know that all means all. Praise God for that. This means that the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse us from anything, from abortion to adultery, from lust to chronic lying. You know, sometimes we hold back confession because we think, man, I have sinned in too severe a way for God to ever forgive a person like me. But hear me, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover every single trace of sin in your life. Jesus Christ, God's own son, he went to the cross so he could erase your past. Then he rose again so he could recreate your future. But you will not experience the healing and liberating grace of God until you stop trying to cover your tracks and confess your sins to the Lord and get his forgiveness. Let's stand and pray together. Oh, Father, I pray even now that your Holy Spirit would take this text and press this warning into our hearts. God, help us to turn from all manner of sin. And God, we should do this daily because we'll sin daily. So God, whatever it is, uh, let us bring it to the light today. And God, as much as we turn away from sin, I pray we'd take that next step and turn to Jesus. God, your son, he's the only one who can give us forgiveness and healing from our sins. He made provision for our sins on the cross And if we uncover, oh, praise God, he covers with his righteousness. So, God, whatever your spirit's speaking today, may we be obedient. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for hanging in there for a hard sermon. I know it hit me hard this week as I was writing that in the NICU and in the hospital cafeteria. But here's what I want us to do this morning. Invitation is twofold. Number one, um, just be sensitive to what God's speaking. Um, What temptations are you dealing with? What sin have you fallen into? And I want you to make 
at a point this morning to not leave this facility until you do business with God. Now, you don't need a pastor. Uh, Jesus is your go-between. He's your mediator. So you start with just doing business with God. Maybe in your seat. You can sit. You can kneel. You can move around. Do business with God. Confess those sins. Confession is simply agreeing with God that you have sinned, that you violated his law, that you turn from that sin, and then you receive his mercy and grace. But we do have pastors available. I'll be around. Uh, Pastor Phil's around here somewhere. We've got our prayer team available. They've got uh, orange lanyards, and they'll fan out in the back and then across the front. You know, Hebrews tells us that sometimes it's good to confess our sins to other people because sometimes I get so weak and get so entrapped that I need my brothers and sisters to help me. So if we can be any help to you, if we can help you put back the pieces of your marriage, we'll do anything we can to serve you and to help you walk in the light. I'll make that commitment to you. And then secondly, if you're a believer, if you're walking with the Lord, we're gonna have communion. And man, today, what a beautiful, tangible symbol of the blood of Jesus, his broken body that allows us to walk in light, that cleanses and covers our indiscretions. And so we've got uh, servers in the front, stations here and in the back. And so if you're new, just when you're ready, you come forward or back and receive the bread and the cup. We take the bread, dip it in the cup. And if you've got a sensitive stomach like I do, there's a gluten-free station back there. So please make use of that if you need to. So in a prayerful spirit, let's respond as Will and the team leads us.